Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. In South Dakota, hunting is our shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why we're focused on making our fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at HuntTheGreatestSD.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and season information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at HuntTheGreatestSD.com. Dave, welcome back to another episode of Woods and Waters Project. We're so excited to have you again to talk about a subject I'm very giddy to get into. So welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, after we did our last podcast, you and I talked about a handful of ideas for other like really interesting subjects to share with our listeners. And so um, hopefully we have you back again, even after <laughs> after this, because there's some exciting stuff that we've talked about. But today we're talking about shot placement, deer recovery, blood tracking, whatever we can fit into this time together. And so, so, so pumped about it. Um, Dave, could you introduce yourself to our to our audience and tell them a little bit about a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Dave Hoffman. And uh, one thing we'll talk about today is about some of the shot placements, deer recovery, blood tracking, some of the training, um, and just some of the overview of Iowa blood tracking as well as, as well in the nation. And some of my history is I've had dogs, oh, and trained dogs since, I guess, since I was in grade school, pretty much. And it was just very important to me, the importance of recovering game that I harvested. And so that was, um, and somewhat got brought up in my ancestry too, and my relatives in Germany, especially important to retrieve that game that you harvest, which, which like, if, for example, in Germany, it's crazy. Um, if you have, buy a waterfowl license, you have to have a dog that re can retrieve those waterfowl or ducks or pheasants, whatever you're harvesting. If you have a deer license, a deer tag, you need access to a dog. 
either own one or buddy has a dog that can blood track and recover that deer as well. So you need that before you even go out and harvest your deer. So it's really quite and crazy the requirements in Germany and Europe as wow. far as, as game recovery. So game recovery is really important to me. And I've been recovering game since the since I first had a dog. I had a lab. It was actually a mix. Um, I've been recovering deer since the mid 80s, I guess. So just always had dogs uh, and just enjoyed dogs and just amazing um, the, their abilities to recover game from in the water to pheasants in the field and, and even deer in the blood tracking as well. Just amazing their abilities. So we'll kind of cover some of those today. And the first things we'll kind of cover is some of the wounding rates. Um, some of the studies, I have a slideshow I'm going through here, but some of the states, for example, um, recorders, Georgia, for example, as high as 44%, Indiana, 50s, uh, New York, 7%. Iowa study back in 82 was around 17% wounding rate on deer. And, how do uh, they decide, what, like, how do they find the wounding rate? Like, how does that get recorded? So some of these is there actually, that's a good question, is these are marked deer or even radio collared deer. And so they're typically tagged deer. They know, I want to study in Minnesota, it was actually in a, in a military uh, Fort Riley. It's, you can find this study online as far as wounding rates and how they mark the deer. And then they interview hunters and um, they go and examine deer after they're shot, but this also interviews with the hunter before and after his hunt as far as deer, whenever an arrow, most of these are archery and some of these are gun as well. But um, the other thing is uh, interesting about Fred Bear. He was, archery is extremely important to him. And one thing he was really interesting to read is he was really concerned about wounding rates and loss rates and the perception and the negative impact bow hunters were giving, getting from the general public on wounding rates. And at that time, there was the older equipment, uh, there was wounding rates, he estimated around 40%. And he was just really quite disturbed with the number of wounding rates. And so recovery was important to him. Uh, he even looked at potential like putting poison tipped arrows broadheads on his arrows because is it'd be able to recover the deer even more uh have a higher success rate of recovering but um they said well fred bear never used a dog to recover a deer and uh, that may true be true but i i bet he would have been uh very excited or very pleased if he could have used a dog to recover deer back in his day and age so some of the things he really talked about too was about shot, your shot selection is key and, and really good, is very important to put that arrow in the vital organs there. And that involves proper shot angle, shooting within your effective range and properly timing the shot with that particular animal as well. So I got a slideshow I'm kind of running through here and I, th I think Steph may post some of these pictures up on social media and stuff as well. But my next slide, it's, it's actually a tracking questionnaire for the Iowa blood trackers. 
And there's about 20 different things that are asked in this questionnaire. It talks about the, the weight of the arrow, the broadhead, the penetration of the arrow. Was there a pass through? You know, what did the arrow smell like? Where it was hit? Your shot angle, the distance. And so all these records are kept. And with the United Blood Trackers, there's records kept from over close to 3,000 deer a year. And so with these records and this data, it's in some ways it's helpful to look at this data and come up with ways to wound less deer and, and ways to re actually then recover more deer is the ultimate goal. And that's what really what I strive for. So I've been involved with uh, blood tracking since learned about it since the first the early 90s it was actually a dnr guy at a north west iowa had a draw har and he blood tracked and i got just interest from him so i've actually been working on trying to get it legal and actually more active in the last 10 years with iowa blood trackers and um, it's really been quite a process a really frustrating and a really quite long battle with a lot of people really quite opposed to it. Uh, and is so, that, yeah, is, is that, and I don't want to speculate, but just from something I've talked about quite a bit on the podcast and have learned about the last few years, um, as someone that I love, I love archery hunting, I love deer hunting, um, but I'm a pretty new uh, houndsmen, like if you will. And I know sometimes there are battles between organizations that maybe support like coon hunters versus deer hunters. Um, does, does some of that resistance uh, come from arguments between those types of like hunters or, or does it, is there like a lot of layers there probably? Um, well, actually one of the main persons opposed a legislator was actually soured on dogs he was just really soured on dogs partly it was coyote dogs sure. ruined a hunt for him he was in a deer stand uh ready to shoot a deer and some coyote dogs come through on his property ruined his deer hunt and so he was just sour on anything dogs he was actually a you know a houndsman himself and he and he still coyote hunts regularly but he was just really opposed uh he a lot of it was just some misinformation maybe sure uh he believed the dogs were not capable of tracking deer and recovering individual deer that the dogs would disturb other hunters and so there's um and, and a big one was that people would lose their woodsmanship skills that they wouldn't go out and be able to, you know, interpret the field signs. They would just get lazy. They just, well, just stick an arrow in it and then call a dog. Yeah. And in, in ways, it's, it's really not like that. It's, it's people that want to blood track. They want to be responsible and ethical and have ethical recovery of that game animal. And that's what I really believe in is this, we really owe it to the animal to do everything in our ability to recover anything that we might be able to, to wound or to shoot. So yeah, that's yeah. really where, where I get it is if, if I'm gonna shoot that, I'm, I'm gonna do my damn best to recover that particular animal. Yeah, 
definitely. Yeah. Thanks for yep. explaining that. I just always wondered, like, um, I don't, I don't know, you know, if I'm skipping ahead sometimes too with, with these questions, but I would have assumed years ago that people used dogs with no repercussion. I mean, was there a point where it just became, or like how long ago did it become illegal? And I know it's legal now in our state, but. Yep. So it's, it's been regularly practiced for over 10, 15, almost 20 years. And what they've done is it was illegal, but many times would call an officer and get permission and say, Hey, fortunately I wounded a deer. Can I take my dog out? And it was, so it was done under the radar. And many times uh, the officers even accompanied and helped recover some of these deer as well. Yeah, very cool. Because so, I know, and I know, it, and we're talking, you know, a lot about Iowa too, but I, you know, from some of the states I've hunted in, I know it's very commonly done in some mm-hmm. states to use dogs for tracking and others it's, I think, still very limited, but. Yep. So it's it's really been only legal in the United States. I got this right. I think it's the late seventies. Um, wow. There's a John. If I pronounce his right, John Generay. He has the book uh, um, "Tracking Dogs for Wounded Deer." Excellent resource. I'll I'll have pull up the information on his book here later in the in the slideshow in the podcast. But just excellent book on deer recovery. He has a book on shot placement. He has on training dogs. And he is the, one of the main persons that got this initiated in the United States. He did some of his research and masters. He was over in Germany and learned the blood tracking from Germany. And they've been doing it for decades and uh, brought that back to the United States. And he was the main person to get this first established in New York and then how it spread from the East Coast and has spread west uh, so iowa became the 40th state to make it legal so there's i have that right 40 or 42 states it's now legal in wow. uh, it's fairly new in minnesota and also in north dakota are some of the newer states and within the last five years that have legalized it as well very cool okay. i did not know it was such a that sounds young to me you know like it, that it, yeah. that's crazy yeah yep. so it's just it is fairly young and so I just think it's the, the the ethical, the responsible thing to do out there. It can be abused. Um, it, so people say the rumors are afraid of people are just going to take longer shots and uh, then call a dog in or take more unethical shots. And that's something I was afraid of too. But what really learning from this research, not only from Iowa, but across the nation is people that take unethical shots, they're going to take unethical shots, regardless if they have a dog or not. Those people are just generally unethical. And so that's, that's really the quite interesting thing is the, on the ethics as well. But um, yeah, I can get more into that and yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, definitely, I, I didn't mean to take you like off your groove of any kind at all. Cause I, I just curious about that. And, um, it seemed, you know, just hearing that it's only 10, you said maybe tw- 20 years in some 
States? Yeah, yeah. So even the farthest goes back to the 70s. So yeah, yeah that's almost 50 years, but many states is under 20 years. This has yeah. been a legal, legal practice. Yeah, just only two years for Iowa. Yeah, and, and I imagine know, like thinking about that now, you know, some of the conversations I've had with um, people in other states, you know, they're like, what? It's it's not legal in Iowa, Iowa, or it's just becoming legal. It's been mm -hmm. legal here for, you know, forever. And, and, yeah. you know, perspective wise for them, it probably has been, if they're a relatively young hunter, you know, they, it has been legal for them for probably a period of time. Uh, not realizing that it's so new because I, I would have thought, I mean, I know people have been using dogs for hunting since the beginning of the dog human relationship, mm -hmm. but, um, I would have thought that this was something in since the Americas, you know, came to be that it was like a legal hunting mm -hmm. method. I would have, I would have thought mm -hmm. that for sure. Oh, some of the other fears, why the challenge is it's, it's, it's taken over 10 years to pass to get into law is afraid that it would turn into dogs being used to hunt deer like they do in some of the Southern States or Eastern. So that was some of the fears that it would, it would turn into so this law requires the dog to be on a leash. And so that that typically prevents any dog, you know, from chasing deer and, and turning into, into hunting with a deer. So hunting with a or hunt, using a dog to hunt is illegal. And people believe that's a slippery slope. I I, I guess I don't really or hope to see that happen in Iowa. But um, yeah, that's just dogs use for the recovery. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, makes sense. So kind of switch back a little more back about the shot placement. And it's in some ways it's how you, you plan and practice your shot strategy. You visualize and practice your strategy and you choose the proper shot angle. And just important to pass up your iffy shots and just spending weeks preparing. And then about the part taking satisfaction in the thrill of just being up close to any of the game animals, even when no shot is taken there too. So that's the, something I enjoy being up close and personal and, and passing up those longer shots. And with the longer shots, of course, it becomes more difficult to hit the vital areas. You got more chance of the arrow deflecting on the unnoticed brush or branches and the longer the arrows the longer the time the arrows in the air the greater chance of the animal even moving even just an inch or two just to makes a difference between between a good shot and a, and, a, and a marginal shot there yeah and are you primarily seeing or from what you understand you mentioned this earlier but are, is tracking usually done for um, like bow hunters? I mean, is it done much in the shotgun scenario? I mean, I, Iowa, we don't really have like a rifle season. Um, are you seeing other, you know, other hunters besides archers? Use? Yep. So there's, there's a fair number of calls during the youth season. Then it picks up during the archery season. Uh, there is a handful during the shotgun and late muzzleloader but uh, the vast majority of them are for the archery season. But there is even other calls. I've had calls to track lost pets. Um, there's, there's people that do use them for tracking people as well. 
Yeah. Uh, some of these dogs are used for cadaver dogs, people that have the training. And so there is quite the range of training for some of these tracking dogs as well, but uh, primarily for deer. And across the country, they use them for bear, the coyotes, to elk, to whatever particular game. But typically I use mine for, for um, tracking wounded ducks. He's excellent tracking on the water. Those skills uh, carry over into the other things, raccoons and everything else that we hunt as well. Cool. So I got a slide up here. It shows about the chest cavity and just shows some of the vitals on the particular deer, where you want to aim and the, the different, uh, as far as the for shot placement, uh, for to avoid the abdominal cavity, of course, the guts, we also call that to avoid. Um, and this, here we got up a chart on, the, it's a grid system on what a, what a person should do after the shot. In some ways, this is a grid system. And there's also a 3D app after you take the shot. It's um, holders have it on their, their app. And it's actually can visualize the arrow going through that deer and what organs it might hit. It's, you put on there where, where you shot placement, where you believe you hit, and it will come up with the entrance and the exit wound as well. So some of the things to encourage after the, after the shot is, is, is just, you know, stop, um, stay put, just kind of settle down and just take a little break um, and visualize where did you hit that deer and, the, and to, to really record that. And then to, you know, exactly where was that deer standing? Pick a, pick a landmark. If you can pick a particular tree, you know, something. And with that landmark, you can really get a good mark on that is that you got a good spot landmark to start from to go over there and then look for your arrow and look then look for field signs like hair, blood, and other things that you might find on there too. So that's just really important to pick a landmark. The other thing is to really notice what was the deer's reaction. Did it uh, just slunk off? Did it did kind of like a mule kick? Um, did it just run off? So the, really the different reactions can really tell you indications on where you might have hit it, but really more importantly, is it more of a recovery plan? And for example, uh, the, the, the deer you shoot and it, it hunches up like it's got a gut ache, you know, this chance it might mean like a gut shot. And so that means that you maybe should probably give that deer quite a bit of time um, maybe 12 or so hours if it's a gut shot at least to go and recover that deer. So then again too is how did it ran off? Was it running off? Was it hunched over? Did it just just take off like mad? And so really all those field signs help you come up with a recovery plan and you know really note the direction that it traveled. And so again the take home is stay put and think all this through. Uh, the other thing is even text or eventually call somebody. If you're an inexperienced hunter, call and ask for somebody. This in many ways for myself even too is talk it through and it, it gives you just a little more clarity and, and kind of just talking it through a little better game plan. So, so next thing is then recovering the arrow. 
you know, what color of blood are you seeing on that arrow? What type of hair are you finding on there? Was this a pass-through shot? And you, with pass-throughs, you have a 35% greater chance of recovery with a pass-through. So that's one thing I'm really going to kind of stress in this podcast is the importance of a pass-through and just the greater chance of recovery. And so that's really things that you can do as a hunter to get a pass-through um, for your set setups. And so I see different things like mechanicals versus fixed blades, uh, the difference in arrows and the arrow weights. And um, so, for example, one thing is it's kind of disappointing is watch some of the hunting shows and you'll see that arrow hit the deer and it, it almost like it bounces off and there's no pass through. And I'm thinking, oh, gee, what, what's going on there? And so it seems like uh, there's been a kind of a fad to, to have a huge cut out there and in some ways um, have lighter arrows that travel faster. And so the, the importance is, again, just having your setup so you do have that, whatever you choose for broadheads or arrows that you do have that pass through. So yeah, that seems like, and that's interesting that you mentioned that too, because I, um, in some of the like classes I've helped teach and, you know, in Iowa, I think is the, is the law 40 pound draw for a compound bow or is it a suggestion? No, there is a minimum. I, I've lost track of it's 40 or 45 pounds for that. Yeah. I think, I think it's 40, at least a couple of years ago, it was 40. Um, one of the programs that we did, you know, what was required of all the new hunters, it was 10 adults who are putting a bow in their hand for the first time, and they're going to learn how to hunt in 10 weeks. So they have to pass a shooting test. And part of their test is they all have to be pulling back 40 pounds or more to mm -hmm. participate in the hunt, um, and to kind of pass the course. And, you know, something that was just you know, they're all like fully like able-bodied adults, but all ages and backgrounds and sizes and ever and everything. And every single one of them got to 40 pounds or higher. Um, and in some other, I think I, I'm trying to think if it's maybe Minnesota or Wisconsin that I was at a couple different uh, hunts where we were having this conversation about what weight we pull with our with our bows and like what's necessary versus not. And I believe um, there's a little bit of like, a, well, you don't need to pull back 40 pounds. And there's kind of this like back and forth kind of thing. Cause 40 pounds in my mind, the way that it was like brought to me, even when I was young is like, you're going to be pulling back 45, 50 pounds minimum. And I have a, you know, I'm in the sixties um, as an archer now that I pull back and there's reasons to have heavy weight and not for different scenarios, you know, clothing you're wearing, adrenaline all those layers but do you feel that there needs to be like a minimum weight of like what you're pulling back yeah i think it's it's good to have a, a minimum weight but again i think is it comes down to some of your equipment selection and even especially tuning your bow mm -hmm. and especially then tuning it to yourself each person yeah. you know many times they'll take it to an archery shop and they'll have the expert tune it but it's, it's tuned to them and it's not tuned to you personally. Yeah. So I've been impressed with uh, some of these youth hunters. One is a 12-year-old a girl. She's pulling back 40 pounds and she'll have a pass-through. 
and then I'll see some some buddies or some people that are they're pulling back 65 pounds and and they're not getting pass throughs 65 70 pound you know high high end bows and it's it's kind of crazy that um, the you know the difference um, and so part of that is just their tuning again and and their equipment setup and so I encourage you to those people to meet with an expert there and and figure out your your proper setups and uh, your proper selections and there's some good information out there. Yeah, no, no, that's great. That's great to hear. Cause I, I mean, I knew it wasn't as simple as just the weight that you're, you know, pulling back. I think mm -hmm. that's just one piece of the puzzle. So mm -hmm. that's great. Yep. So um, get back to the evidence that the recovered arrow is in some ways you again, mark, mark the site, but uh, take, take pictures of the hit site. Uh, if you need to uh, even mark it like GPS on your phone. And then again, to ask for help if you're especially a young or inexperienced in interpreting some of the field signs you find there. And so again, look for the, the color of the blood. You know, what, what is the blood type pattern? Is it, is it a drip? Is it a splatter? You know, is it a spray like a, like a lung shot? You know, that's a bonus. Uh, what type of hair? There's even little field guides you can carry and to, um, you know, is this hair from the stomach or from the brisket? Um, is there bone fragments potentially, especially with the, with using a gun? Again, too, is mark the site, take pictures, and then some of the details on the blood, you know, what type of blood? Is it a frothy blood with bubbles in it? Is it bright pink? Um, there's different ways to tell if it's a muscle blood. The other is even to tell the difference if it's a liver blood or even if it's like a just digestive or gut blood. And all those field signs will then help you determine the length you should wait and more of a recovery plan there as well. So... I got a slide I'm pulling up. It's, you know, it's bright pink blood and it's just all frothy and full of bubbles. And that's, that's exactly what we want to see out there. If you hit the heart and the lungs and there's bubbles in the blood and it's extremely high odds, you have a lung hit there and a good chance of recovery. But you can also see that with a single lung hit as well. And single lung hits can be problematic. And there's amazing the number of deer that can survive a single lung hit and some of those deer will be two to three days old and they're still alive they're still slow uh, maybe moving around just on one lug but it's it's amazing the number of deer um, that can survive um, I actually blood tracked and recovered I shouldn't say recovered blood tracked one deer was just over three miles we tracked that deer and end up jumping him and you could see the the blood on the high on one side but it was there was no pass through we believe it just hit the single lung so it was, it was three miles tracked him and it was uh close to 30 hours old and that deer was slow but uh, he was still going and actually got him on camera a week later and actually then later in the season so Many of these deer we know single lung hits survive 
by seeing them on camera, trail cameras, weeks, months, even, even seasons later, even uh, different hunting two or three years later, people shooting that same deer and seeing that particular scar on that particular uh, animal. So the other is uh, covering some of the liver. That's a really dark red blood. And that often requires waiting several hours. Uh, I've tracked deer that have been 22 hour old liver hit and they're still alive. And it, it really varies um, the difference in wait times. Like a low liver hit, they can be dead in four to six hours. Many of the studies, many of the people say, you know, wait a liver hit four to six hours. But you know, there's indications too, if it's a high liver, they bleed out, it take much longer to, to die for a high liver. There's deer that are alive even at 18, 20 hours old. So it's important to know if it's a high liver hit versus a low liver. liver. And it's uh, really quite amazing how long they can live with a liver hit, but over 98% of those liver hits are fatal. And, um, so that's liver hits are really the ones uh, that take a little more thought and skill and come up with a recovery plan on the liver hits on what you're going to do there if you have that hit a little forward or a little back and a little high. So, yeah, are you how are you planning that out with uh, how are you planning that out with? If, if it is a liver hit and you're using a dog um, and like fear of, you know, bumping the deer. Or yeah, so I, I'm sure you'd have that fear anyway, like with any, with any hit, but I would think with such like a long, like yep. a long period of time, like long period of time. Yep. So that's really uh, a really good, important question. It's, so the other part is it's, it's very best to find that deer dead in the first bed. So what, unfortunately, the biggest mistake I see with hunters is with a liver shot, they'll wait four to six hours, they'll, especially on a high liver that takes longer to die. They'll go in and unfortunately bump that deer. Uh, they'll, they'll track it to the first bed and bump that deer. The deer goes off and unfortunately, then there's no blood after that first bumped out of the first bed. And so that's really important where the effects, especially where the dog comes in there as well, is where the dog can track that deer and the um, blood tracking is a misnomer how that dogs can recover and track that deer with, it, with no blood trail. So the other part is the problem with bumping that deer going too soon is the potential with it then going off to the neighbors and into a place where you can't recover that deer as well. So do I still have you there, Steph? It looks like Yeah, I'm here. I okay. I uh yeah, I, I'm wondering with so in Iowa, so if if you shoot a if you shoot a deer and you need to recover it, you can cross property lines basically as long as you leave um your your bow or firearm at the original property, right? Well, 
I know with coon hunting, you can retrieve your dog um, to get them back. So mm -hmm. how does that work when you're mixing the two together? Like if your yep. dog goes to track, I mean, in Iowa, yep. they have to be on a leash. So how, I guess, yep. how does that work? Yep. So in Iowa, the dog has to be on a leash, but with a dog, you need permission as well to track on the adjoining property. You need permission to track on. So that is a little different. If you're the hunter, you can leave your weapon at the property line and you can go track unarmed and recover your deer. So that's one of the, the laws in Iowa. You can, you can track unarmed, but with the dog, you would need to have permission to, to be able to track. Yeah, that makes that so, makes sense because yeah. you're working with the dog directly. It's not like you're retrieving them back. So mm -hmm. that makes complete sense. Yep. So again, kind of with the liver shot, it's it's best to find that deer dead in the first bed. Typically with the liver shot, if you do bump it out of the first bed, typically there's no blood trail after that. That deer is likely gonna die with a with a liver shot. Um, so again, know your wait times, longer times for a higher liver versus a lower liver. Um, would you, and, would, if someone is, has maybe, man, I feel like this might be a silly question, but if, if there's someone with like no blood, but they're confident it went through their sign of. I don't know, maybe, maybe stomach, maybe, you know, some guts on mm -hmm. there or very little blood. Um, are you getting called out for those types of like recoveries too? Like where maybe yep. they're not super confident if they made a good shot or not. Yep. I mean, is that still? Yep. Yep. So the, the, really the part is encourage when in doubt back out. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing, one of the recoveries that I went on this year is there was a liver shot and there was rain in the forecast. So this person archer shot this deer just before sunset, it was five or six o'clock. It was rain in the forecast. So they went in, you know, against just because of the rain, they went in early. Uh, they end up bumping the deer. But what what ended up happening about midnight, it started, it started pouring rain. This was uh, early October this last year. Uh, it rained nearly 10 hours, and so pretty much washed away any blood trail. The hunter says, boy, I don't know, the dogs, can they track in the rain or after it's been washed away? Um, actually, the dogs, the moisture helps hold the scent, and the, the my dog actually tracks better when it's wet, when it's rained. Um, we took my dog in there. It rained nearly 12 hours. We put the, and the track was nearly, uh, it was over 20 hour old track since he, since he shot the deer the previous afternoon and put the dog on there. And it, it, it took him about 12 minutes to find, the, to recover the deer. So that uh, really the rain up to three inches of rain is really no problem. Uh, two to three inches of snow really isn't a problem. So the, the rain and moisture is really no problem for the dog there. So it's really quite amazing. So drier, so like a drier climate, like if we're, if we're having a drought, that yeah. would be a much trickier it, track. Drought. And the other thing is uh, frost in some ways, mm -hmm. it kind of seals in or holds that scent. So an, an early morning track with frost, uh, in some ways it's actually better to wait 
till eight or nine o'clock in the morning when the sun comes out and burns the frost off, the dog will actually even be able to track and recover the deer. It seemed like a misnomer to kind of wait longer, but it actually it's actually better scent by waiting after some yes. of the frost. Yeah. Mine was always like, this is so great to me because my piece of advice was always like, when in doubt, back out, yes, but then look for the birds. <laughs> look oh, up yeah. and look for the vultures, you know? Yep. Eventually yeah. you can look for the scavengers too. Yes. Yep. yep. Certainly one way to, to do it there. So <laughs> I'd rather use a dog. <laughs> yep. but. Like with the blood tracking too, with the, with the gut shots, you know, many of those there won't be much field signs where the fat may, or then the intestines will plug up the hole. And, uh, and many times there isn't the a blood track or anything to trail. So that's really quite amazing how the dogs, they actually track using the inner digital gland, the gland between the toes of the hooves of the deer. And so um, the other part that's amazing is the dogs will tell you whether the deer is dead or alive, the the great the good dogs that are experienced, um, the this Darren Dorn from East Coast will talk about how his dog gets especially excited for gut shots. There's no blood trail, but that dog knows that it's a 99% chance that deer is going to die, and that dog is really excited on gut shot deers because that dog knows he's going to be successful in getting that deer. So it's really quite amazing how you read the dog and the dog will tell you. And what's the other part is really interesting or crazy is how the deer will actually give off a different pheromone, a different scent when it's mortally wounded versus the healthy deer. And so that's the importance of a trained experienced dog is those dogs are able to determine the difference between a healthy deer and a wounded deer, and they know just to track the wounded deer. And that comes in especially helpful when tracking a deer over, when uh, even overnight, when there's been, you know, maybe a good number of healthy deer have actually gone across, even maybe even gone down the same trail as the mortally wounded deer. That dog has to pick out the healthy deer versus the mortally wounded and stay on the correct track and not to veer off and, and, and go and track the healthy deer. Is that something so, and, and you and I talked about this kind of like off offline yesterday. And I just, it's one of those things that I've never really talked about out loud, but you just kind of know, and you, you kind of through educational things, you realize, you know, wolves know how to seek out the sick. Right. And yep. Your stories yeah. about dogs that know people have cancer. Um, and so it's something that's a part of them. And like, it's just kind of, I guess, I don't know, it's just, it's part of their, what they, what they do. So with training a dog, is that something that you kind of have to train specifically for, or do they, do they kind of just figure that out? Like a good, yeah. just, Yep. So even ways to train for that too. So what I use is deer legs from deer that I harvested in my buddies. And so they, it's actually recommended to use a hunter harvested deer legs versus like a roadkill because those hunter harvested deer will have a different odor than a healthy deer. 
So when that deer is mortally wounded, they'll, they actually give off a different pheromone or different smell from a mortally wounded deer versus a healthy one. So that's where yeah. I encourage people with their training, use hunter harvested deer legs if possible. That makes so, a lot of sense. So we talked about the deer legs and, but the difference in how those deer were harvested would make a huge difference because mm -hmm. yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. Cause if they were roadkill more than likely, they probably died pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, they typically died they too go, quick. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that makes yep. sense. Yep. So, but people can use deer legs and kind of start initially can use, um, in some ways, just regular deer blood or cow blood or different blood in some ways, just, just to get started. And it's using the hunter harvest is even more advanced using ski poles and tracking shoes to lay tracks, more advanced I, training I than looked, down the road. I looked those up and, uh, um, I am not, I am not uh, above strapping deer legs to my to my side of my ankles and walking with them. I think that looks mm -hmm. awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that and I thought that was super super interesting and actually makes a lot of sense from a training perspective of just yep. strapping those deer legs to yourself and walking uh, a track for your dog. So I thought that, yep. I thought that was great. They have some special design shoes from Germany and they've been doing it over there for over a hundred years. Some of these tracking shoes and some of the equipment they've used to train their dogs in Germany. Oh my gosh. That's, that's, that's nuts. Carried over here to the U S and those are becoming more popular and more common tracking shoes and where you can strap the deer legs on and lay your, your track using that inner digital gland or the hooks of the deer. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I love it. So um, back to our slideshow, we talk about recovering, coming up with a recovery plan. And some of the things you look at is the weather factors. Is it going to rain or snow? You know, how does that play in your plan? What other evidence you see at the site? Um, do you have permission to track on the neighbors? So the biggest thing is coming up with your wait times. And so with this chart here, oftentimes most archeries recommend heart and double lung about an hour, liver shot six to nine hours. So I would say that's on the conservative side on my estimate. I've seen deer alive at 28 hour, 28 hour. I've had a liver shot and that deer was still alive. It was still weak, but still alive. And that's really quite amazing. So for gut shots, they recommend 12 to 24. I've seen gut shots die as soon as four hours. But I've also seen gut shot deer that are alive at three days before they become septic and finally succumb. So it can really vary. And yeah, and I've heard that, you know, I don't know that all animals are like this, but I don't even know where I've heard this. But deer have like a very strong will to live too. So they're going to fight it um, as much as they can. Extremely, especially seems like the, the larger bucks here in Iowa they have a boy they're tough the um but they compare them you know they're much even tougher than deer from the east coast or smaller deer down south so in some ways i almost compare them the especially during the rut and the the deer that should have gone down and laid down with either a liver shot or gut shot and it's during the rut and they're traveling and they go much further than they should there's some deer that are maybe pursued by a coyote and go further than they should, they over a mile or so. 
even with a really good shot, it's really amazing the the strength and stamina of these, especially these bigger bucks. They just have the muscle strength and the abilities. It's really quite amazing there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I I think I heard in comparison to, and I don't want to like speak wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is what I've been told a couple times, is that um, elk are the same way. Like they're going to fight, fight, fight <laughs> until their last sure. breath kind of thing. But I've heard that caribou pretty much like give up. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I've heard, yeah. I've heard that a couple of times. Yep. They'll just and lay I, down and yeah. In my experience, boy, the, the elk are especially tough. I've even had lung gets where they're still alive and, and our Iowa deer are tough and strong, but elk are especially tough in the, in the, especially getting a pass through on an elk and just the really takes some really good equipment, especially for elk too, to, take one of those down yeah yeah no doubt so look some of this steps on successful recovery got a number of things here one is proper shot placement you know, attention to visual audio cues immediately after the shot uh, deciding when and how to begin your tracking and recovery process yeah i should know there's skills in knowing how to track and reading game signs. There's a attention to trailing details, including signs such as blood drops, you know, tracks, bent twigs. Uh, it's important to, you know, stick to a game plan and, and have that never give up attitude. Have multiple recovery strategies, especially if the trail is lost. Another good one is just having patience out there as well. So um, here I got this chart that just shows the shot placements. There's um, different angles shots there. So one is the a steep angle shot. Many times we're in the in a stand, the deer will come by close by, you know, five ten yards, and so it's just a really steep angle. And so that's one of the things I've seen actually really unexpectedly with the deer recovery is the number of deer that are wounded at close range. Uh, I was really surprised. I thought the, the majority of the calls would be people taking long shots or unethical shots, 45, 50, you know, even the really longer, the longer, I would say uh, difficult shots. And, but more of the wounded deer coming the challenges the high angle shots and and the number of deer that were wounded at, at 10 to 15 yards a number of factors on that is one is the many people practice from the ground uh, the other thing is many times they put their first pin at 20 yards and so when you have a deer that's at 15 many times and I've done this, learned this the hard way, is I've, I've you know, basic thing in, in the rush is I put my first pin right at the deer at 15 yards and, and, and actually shoot right where I was aiming and actually shooting high with having my pin, 20 yard pin. And the other part is just that steep angle is just really the poor, shot placement it's just a high angle and it's so often and so easy 
to get the off lung. And so that's what I so many times I've seen with the recovery. That angle shot is a single lung that the arrow penetrates, or I should say the arrow does not penetrate or pass through the deer and it's lodged in the off shoulder. And that's probably the number one type of um, majority of the deer that I've seen that were lost is that high angle shot and actually at close range. So um, we've got some of the different angles of the deer here is a frontal shot and there's certainly some margin, some uh, difficulties with that. Well, I've seen many times my experience the people that have taken that shot, that arrow actually deflects goes on the outside of the rib cage, actually under the armpit, and uh, doesn't go into the chest cavity. Uh, it seems like that deer will bleed like crazy the first 200 yards, and then that's it's more of a muscle wound, and then lose blood, and, and many of those deers have been really difficult and very challenged to recover on those frontal shots. Then we got some shots for the rear end shots. Um, We've had a number of shots taken like that. And typically, there it's a muscle hit into the ham. Uh, there's actually pretty good blood. And then with the muscle hit, it, it tends to fizzle out within 200 yards as well and really challenging to recover those deer as well. So some of the why shots go wrong. We've got a list number of things here that contribute to unsuccessful shots. Uh, part of it is shooting the the hunter shooting the animal would be beyond the hunter's effective range, further than they practice or further than um, within their range anyway. Shoot, and the second is shooting animal that's the animal's looking at the hunter or the animal's alarmed. And when they're on alert, it's just their reactions are so quick and where they can jump the string and such too. Uh, number four is just the poor shot angle and placement. Um, another part is the, the hunters having little or little knowledge on the game's vital areas on actually where to shoot. Some of the other is uh, hunters muscle fatigue, holding, holding your bow or you know, trying to hold it back and too long and become where you, you start to fatigue and start to shake. The other is another is actually poor shooting technique or release. And some of that's related to just some of the, the hunter's excitement level out there too. Another factor is just the lack of practice with the hunting equipment. Um, typically just grabbing your bow and just heading out to the woods to, to hunt, you know, when you're first, your first time out and not really spending the time and effort to practice. Uh, the other is... Uh, problem is shooting with brush and limbs in the way that's been a problem uh, the other problem is shooting when the animal's running or moving the other is not con continuing to aim and focus on the aiming spot long enough after the shot make sure that and so you really want to make sure you, you hold on that and have a good follow through uh, the other is some maybe is some poor mental or physical condition that affects the hunter's shooting abilities. And lastly, is just kind of poor shooting light out there is another why things go wrong with some of our shots. And I admit yeah. that I'm, 
Well, and I know I can just, you know, I can admit that like I've been in many, I've been in many of these situations or multiple probably at the same time, I would say uh, more, more that than anything of just uh, the adrenaline excitement level is a big factor for sure. I know that affects everybody a little bit different. I I love talking to, um, especially, (laughs) especially if they're kind of newer and they get their first when you're teaching when you're teaching the archery side or the bow hunting side you can't really replicate what the adrenaline rush is going to be like for that person unless you can get them in front of a deer so trying to share that and talk about that and listening to myself and like other instructors talk about it is always really fun um because i've noticed mine's very delayed um and it totally depends you know if that if that deer is, I think it's almost better if a deer comes in kind of quickly and all of a sudden versus one that's like making its way to me, like really slow. Cause if it's making uh-huh. its way to me, I am starting to overthink probably a lot and getting way too amped up before it gets to me versus the ones that kind of pop up out of nowhere. And I only have a, you know, a short period of time to kind of think about it. Um, And when that happens, I feel like I'm pretty focused in the moment. And then after I shoot, it's like, I can't even explain it. Like I have like my body's twitching and it's almost like I black out. I remember the first time, the first uh, deer I got with a bow, I remember out of body experience, immediately shot it, hung up my bow went down my tree stand and stood there. And I'm like, what am I doing? Get back up in my tree stand. Like it was so fast, like speedy Gonzalez kind of thing. <laughs> like I was so amped up. Um, and yeah, I just, I'm sure that has such an effect too on when you're tracking your deer and I, and you're, and you're bringing someone in with a dog and they're asking you to kind of tell them the story, like recap your hunt for me, what happened? I'm sure there's so such misinformation that hunters don't even mean to do because the adrenaline got to them or it happened so fast. Like I know there's a name for it, but the way we recall things is not super accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sure that really has an impact on how well, how well you can find a deer or not. You know? Yeah. It's, it's really quite amazing how that adrenaline plays into it, into a person's shooting. And, uh, I can certainly relate with that. And, and the other part is, uh, it really comes down to discipline and that for me, that adrenaline starts pumping and, you know, I'm more tempted to take iffy shots and unethical shots when the adrenaline, you know, in some ways I'm really not thinking clearly and, uh, but, you know, it's such a rush and, you know, flow there and you really want to get the deer and it's really difficult to be the self-discipline there too and it's and it's and many times it's it's easy to take to err in judgment and uh, and then too you talked about after the shot the, um, many people are so excited uh, they don't keep track which way the deer ran and so interviews with the hunters too is um, is uh, there's times uh, it's crazy that the the hunter claims he saw the deer run west and the dog will start tracking and the deer will go, the dog will go the other way. And the hunter says, no, no, that the deer didn't <laughs> go that way. 
and the other part is in some ways uh, is trust the dog and uh, uh, some of the trackers will say well let's you know we'll go that way but the dog says this so so we'll go follow the dog and then sure enough the dog goes the other direction and, and finds the deer and that happens really quite often it's really quite amazing but the dog knows and the part is again the bond with your dog tracking and and trusting and reading your dog too when it when it tells you something much much different than what the hunters told you but yeah. uh, again too that yeah and i imagine that's not i would say if i had to guess i would bet most of the time it's it's not because the hunter's being dishonest. It's probably because they just don't recall it in the way that it actually happened, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yep. They don't re quite recall. And well, some other factors is there may at times be a second deer and, or there may be a group of deer yeah. and they just get uh, just a little confused at times. They mean well, but there's, there's many times that some, the information is not always quite accurate. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I can see, I can see that. I could see too, just um, I know we're going to talk more specific into dogs with something I'm thinking about as someone that, you know, I, I told you, I, I have a dog that I would like to see how he does with, um, deer tracking. Uh, he's a, you know, he's a coon hound who seems like he has like all these attributes of a potential like tracking dog. Cause he's really not interested in training, but he is really smart. Um, and so I had asked you some questions yesterday about that and something that it might be a double, double like question here, but, um, with trusting of your dog, if you have a dog that you've been training, seems like they're doing well and they're pretty new. I mean, how often are like the dogs making mistakes? Is it pretty much these dogs are doing a pretty dang good job? I know that totally depends, but like, <laughs> so, so there's, I can describe, well, they're kind of like people. They have good days yeah. and they have off yeah. days. Absolutely. And so the things sometimes come down to scenting conditions where at times where there might be frost they challenge with, or with, with my dog, he, he may get distracted with a raccoon, fresh raccoon that's, that's across the trail. And especially with a coon dog, you know, that's the challenge you're going to run into is he's used to running coons is to keep him focused he's you know yeah. you have a fresh hot coon den right next to the deer trail it's going to be pretty pretty darn tempting for him to investigate that and so that's where the oftentimes as you read the dog they get off the track you end up just restarting them and getting them focused sometimes it just takes in some ways to their uh they have that adrenaline flow go too, and they're all amped up. You get them up, and you know my dogs. He's all, ah, you know, I'm gonna find a deer, and he's all amped <laughs> up. Is is take a little break and let him get settled down, get him focused, re reset, get his mind refocused on that track, and and get him started on that. So yeah, so. and that makes a lot of sense. I think the added pressure would come from for sure uh, if you are someone, you know, so I know that um, tra trackers in Iowa can kind of set their price, right? Like they can set their price of if you bring me in to find your deer, mm -hmm. I can set what I can set what that would look mm -hmm. like. 
And I would imagine when you start adding money to it, that's another level of pressure. But then I suppose if you're charging, you're probably feeling pretty confident in yours and your dog's ability uh, Mm -hmm. to find, you know, to find a deer. I think that's where it would get to feel. It's like, it's like anything like going from being a hunter to a guide, the pressure is different. It starts to become a job, which is a lot of fun, but the pressure is just there. That wasn't there before. I am. Yep. Yep. So I can talk about prices and things as well, too, if we're on that. Sure, topic. yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It really varies by tracker. In some ways, it really varies on the experience level as well. Uh, some of the new trackers that are, we call them tracker and training, or they have a dog in training, is this is uh, their first year. And since they're in training, they won't charge anything. Um there's times they may take tips or gas money, but so in some ways it varies on their experience level, what they might charge. Mm -hmm. Uh, Myself, this is a passion for me, something I believe is responsible. And myself, I don't charge to recover deer. So it's something I just really find rewarding. And that's a passion of mine. I'd like to see this be successful in Iowa, see it go over well. And I have a passion to try to recruit additional trackers out there. Well, we're really quite short on the number in the state. And uh, we believe it was over probably 40 to 60% of the calls during the archery season last year went unanswered just because of the lack of the trackers in the state. So there is a demand out there for them. Uh, Many of these trackers, they have full-time jobs they're hunters themselves, they have families, and so they're really, their time is quite limited as well. So there's, that makes sense. yeah, well, I just, when I, when it, when I found out it became legal and started thinking about that, you know, living in Iowa, I'm surprised to hear that, to be honest, because we have some of the most sought after whitetail in the country. Mm-hmm. So, ooh, looking because you know for me at first when I heard about it I'm thinking gosh I I have a ton of hunting friends and I love working with dogs and if I could you know down the road ever assist especially with working with so many kids and Mm -hmm. um just different people like if I could help them find their deer that would be super rewarding for me and I would I would love that because I love helping people track their deer just me um and then I thought about the opposite side. So if people are listening and they're thinking about this, if you think about it from the passion side, that's amazing. And then just also people pay a lot of money to hunt big white tails in Iowa yeah. and they will pay to get their deer found Yeah. <laughs> also. Yep. So, so. It's, so as many people as yes, yeah, important to recover the deer. And so this, there's uh, many times uh, averages depends on the distance they have to travel, the amount of time that takes, uh, 250 to $400 range. Uh, there's people that uh, the higher end, that's often four to $500, especially if they have to travel over an hour to recover that deer, you know, especially with the price of gas nowadays. Or, um, some of those people have uh, 20 to 30 years of tracking experience. So they, Mm -hmm. and they have their dogs certified in tracking and they've spent hundreds of hours in training and they have thousands of dollars in their dog. Um, 
like for example, my dog had some medical bills and, you know, I easily have over 6,000 just in medical bills last year. And even if I were to charge, um, there's been criticism while these people are making uh, their, uh, their, they're just charging an arm and a leg. Um, but in ways I challenge that if a tracker out there, you know, I have several thousand in their dog, there's, they're really not gonna, it's gonna be very difficult for somebody to actually get rich on tracking, blood tracking yeah. out there charging. Yeah. So what I encourage people is to, when you go on looking for a tracker is to ask questions, you know, what is your experience? What do you charge? What do you charge if you find the deer? What do you charge if you don't find the deer? Uh, the other is the some trackers just take tips. You know what? What is that suggested tip? Or it's, many times the tracker won't say and and just you know um, ask for gas money and then just kind of yes. with the hunter a tip whatever you kind of feel like for the job that I done. So there's times they'll, I've been at particular tracks, um, even four to six hours is where we've tracked that deer over three miles and it's, it's taken four to six hours. And so it really varies on the time that you're there. And then, you know, that, um, you know, again, these people have families and other obligations and, and they're, you know, they've worked 40 to 50 hours in a week and they're, they got other things going. So um, that's just kind of the things going on with, with many of these trackers are just volunteers and they just want to do the right thing and recover the deer. Yeah. So, do most of the hunters walk along with the tracker and the dog? They typically do. Um, mm -hmm. What I asked is that, um, so it depends too. Um, some trackers do not allow it some trackers especially do not allow them to carry weapons yeah. mainly for their safety is what has happened as far as safety is the tracker and his dog are leading and they're up front mm -hmm. that deer jumps up and is wounded and the hunter is carrying a gun mm -hmm. and actually uh you know is shooting at the deer and the hunter and the dog are in the line of fire yeah yeah so in the heat of the moment, the adrenaline, the, the hunter gets excited and is actually uh, nearly shot some trackers around the country. Yeah. So it, it, it really varies. Um, yeah, and I could see that too for so many different scenarios. Like my, just talking about this and starting to think about it, I, my initial thought would be, well, the hunter probably walks along, but then there's many scenarios where that would make not make sense. Like maybe the hunter is not, you know, able to walk yeah. that far, you know, yep. um, for whatever particular reason. Um, also just the stress. And if it's a hunt that you're, you know, you're going to wait out that deer for a day before you go tracking for it or something like that. Um, maybe that person for, you know, whatever reason can't be there for that portion of the time. And also just the, um, the ability for the tracker and their dog to focus and feel safe and just be able to do what they got to do. So mm -hmm. I just, yeah, just mm -hmm. thinking about that, I'm like, probably makes sense for them not to come along mm -hmm. sometimes. But I would say the vast majority, over 90% of them, the trackers do have the hunter go along. 
Yeah. And what they do is they follow along and they actually are looking for blood. Mm-hmm. And many times the trackers that go with me, they're actually helping mark the trail. They'll have it like on X pulled up and they'll have mark the track and they'll help navigate in the, but especially what they've done is help mark the last blood they see. And, and in some ways they, they're looking for blood just to help confirm that the tracker and the dog are on the right track. So yeah, I, I've, I think I've had the tr- hunters go with me all but one time, except where one was a, a disabled and wasn't able to, wasn't able to keep up. Yeah. Yep. Oh, it's great. Yeah. That makes sense too, to have them help. And yeah, Onyx maps would be great. Cause you can use your, you can track your path the whole entire time yep. or mm-hmm. mark spots. It's that's awesome. Yep. Yeah. I know I took you off on another thing, mm-hmm. but that was so, mm-hmm. that's so great. Like just breaking that down. And I think before we went, you know, through all of this, we were still talking about, um, like recovery and like shots and all of that. I don't know if you want to like jump back into that, but yep. Yep, a little back more about equipment. And uh, another thing was really trying to emphasize with uh, shot placement and recoveries is the, a pass-through, just the great the importance of a pass-through. Again, to emphasize, you know, a 35% greater chance of recovery if you got an arrow that passes through the deer. And there's some really some neat research out there too by Dr. Ed Ashby in this um, high momentum archery. There's actually under there, there's a Facebook uh, page on this and it talks about the front of center on arrows and really talks about some of the data and especially related to pass-throughs. But one of the quotes by Dr. Ashby, the founder of the group is the goal a quote here is the goal of every bow hunter should be to achieve the most penetration possible on an animal with the intent of a full pass through. So he's really stresses the importance of penetration on an animal. And another quote by him too is you should always use the heaviest arrow possible that has the trajectory that can still that you find acceptable. So there is a balance there with finding your your arrow weight using the penetration, but again, keeping mind your the arrow trajectory there too. So, oh, um, that's yeah. One of the things I've seen is some people want the there's there's just different trade offs there too. People some ways like to use a lighter arrow, lighter broadheads that have a, a flatter flight, but there's trade-offs there too, is they're just not getting the penetration. So I really stress about finding the balance and something that really works for you. So we, I got a, on my next slide here, it talks about some of the stats that have been collected. One is, this is actually from Shane Simpson out of Minnesota. He's a blood tracker. He also has a number of videos and podcasts out there on deer recovery and different videos on hunting deer, turkeys and such, but we have some stats here from Shane, but we also have some from the United Blood Trackers group, some of the recoveries, information they have data from their recoveries as well. So um, 
again, it mainly talks about the pass-throughs are important. Um, some of the data shows fixed blades are more likely to have pass-throughs versus mechanicals. Um, I said I was wondering when we were talking about this earlier, I was going to ask about mechanical versus fixed blades because I know, um, you know, there's pros and cons, I'm sure, to, to both, but. Yeah, especially the, yeah, there is the pros and cons. And other things to look at is then typically the and heavier arrows are to have a pass through as well. So one, one thing, the kind of take home message is that typically people that shoot mechanicals then shoot lighter arrows as well. So that's part of the dilemma there too. And so maybe one possibility if a person shoots mechanicals, it may be better, may be more practical than to shoot a heavier arrow and then you're gonna get your pass-throughs with that particular mechanical. So, um, yeah, too, yeah. So that's one thing to consider. If choosing mechanical, potentially shooting a heavier arrow. So, so the average, so the average yards uh, statistics on there. So could you explain that to me a little bit? So like, yeah. for example, it says like, 324 yards in total for all tracks. So this is like averages for yep. tracking. Yep. So that's the, the average for distance where the deer recovered. Most of the deer are, are recovered under 300 yards. Uh, there's amazing the number of uh, single lungs that are over three miles in tracks. So the, some of the gut shots, two to three miles over a mile. Um, many times if a deer isn't disturbed or bumped, there's many of those gut shots will lay down within within two to 400 yards and yeah. the liver shots as well. So uh, the importance of not bumping those deer early on. Um, but the other distance is the shot distance from the stand. And this was what I was really quite, really quite surprised on. I expected that most of the deer that I would be asked to track on were long distance shots where the deer moved or, you know, the, you know, unfortunately some of the hunters I've heard as well, the deer wasn't getting any closer. So, so I, I just had to try it. So I just let the arrow fly. And so I was, ex and, and that's where some of the criticism was coming from using a tracking dog is they're saying, well, archers are just gonna take longer shots if they got access to a dog. They're just gonna stick an arrow in it and call a dog. And what we're finding is that's really not true. Again, it comes down ethical. Those unethical people are gonna take that shot whether they have a dog or not. So what else, back to distance, was surprised the number of wounded deer actually under 20 yards that aren't recovered. The, the high angle shot, the single lung, the arrows lodged in the off shoulder, there's not the pass through. And I was really quite surprised the shots under 20 yards. And partly again too, is they're putting their 20 yard pin on a 10 or 15 yard deer and, and shooting high. And again too, is this just the shot angle. There's less yeah. vitals to hit on that high angle shot. So, and I can relate with that. I've 
I've known at least three deer that I've shot high on and I did not recover that were under 15 yards. You know, I thought, well, these are, you know, it's 15 yards. This is just a gimme shot. And these just going to be in the heck where I shot high and it was single lung and, and didn't recover those deer. So that's, you know, personally, I've, I fall into that category. The deer that I have not recovered have been under 15 yards. So I, so this actually once looking at the data actually makes sense and I can relate with that perfectly for the mistakes yeah. that I made. Yeah. Uh, so the other is um, for a dog too, the clean tracks versus a, a dirty track. And so what a clean track is, is where the hunter has gone in there on the blood trail, track the deer, uh, typically has gotten blood on their shoes and, and then spread blood around in the field. So that typically results when people are grid searching. So the, I'll get to a slide, well, you guys can't see it, but it's much, much more difficult for a dog to track a deer after a grid search. There's all these multiple tracks and scent where the hunters spread around the scent on their shoes. It just makes it so much more difficult especially for an inexperienced dog to sort that out. So the encourage, you know, for a hunter to follow that blood track, you know, where they got good blood, but it starts to fizzle out or looks bad. It's really encouraged you to, is to back out, mark that spot and be especially careful not to be walking on that blood track, getting it on your shoes and then spreading it back to the truck. And especially if you have a group of guys that grid search, boy, that's that's one of the most difficult for a young dog. And there's a number of trackers that will not take tracks when they're grid search. It just um, takes so much more. You know, many times it takes three to four times more time, their time and energy. You know, especially they might have five or six people waiting that particular day or evening, five or six people wanting them to track a deer and here they are um, in some ways requiring more time and effort when the, when the track is kind of mucked up or a kind of a dirty track it's this way so to, so to speak so again is uh, that's one really big tip to the hunters don't be getting scent blood on your shoes and spreading that all over the countryside so, yeah, I wouldn't even have initially thought about that because it would be it'd be hard to not do that because, yeah. you know, I think most people are probably wanting to at first find it themselves, you know, so that's that's great. Yeah. So, again, it's, it's that excitement, you know, many times it's uh, and I've had this, especially with young kids and myself is you shoot a deer and scramble down the deer stand and go running after the deer. And <laughs> so that's the mistake I did for my very first deer as I, as I shot this deer and I didn't give it any time. I, so my experience was first was like with, let me back up. This is my first deer that I shot with a, with an arrow is I kind of took it similar, like shooting it with a gun. I, you know, I expected it just kind of drop and it's tracked or not go very far, but with an, so with an shot it with a, from a tree stand, got down from the stand, went, you know, running, pretty much running in the direction the deer went and ex expecting to find the deer laying there. And it's, it, uh, it's really quite much different with archery and patience is key. And, and it's so uh, 
you're so excited, it's so tempting to get down and go try to recover the deer instantly. Yeah, definitely. Yep. I, I've had this conversation with a number of um, really experienced deer hunters, actually, but um, you know, with rifles, you know, very limited use of a rifle in the state of Iowa for hunting and uh, a lot of states surrounding us, uh, that's like their primary way to deer hunt is with, with rifles. And I've actually, I think, I mean, I've easy probably had this conversation a dozen times. It just comes up of um, people who are going from wanting to go in, from rifle hunting into archery. Uh, a lot of the states around here, the normal transition usually looks like, the, you know, reg, I shouldn't say normal, regular transition looks like going from a rifle to crossbow and then to a compound bow. Well, in Iowa, you don't shoot a, you know, you don't shoot a crossbow unless you have an injury and a doctor's note, basically. So it's just interesting from state to state and perspective. One, I didn't, I have, I, I have rifles and I shoot rifles, but not for hunting <clears throat> crossbow. <clears throat> I was always taught, like, if I don't have an injury, I'm not using a crossbow. So I've only shot a crossbow a handful of times. And, and I'm talking to people who have like all these deer and all these experiences and that's how primarily they hunt. And then when we start talking about archery and like not bumping deer and like giving them time to wait, you know, some of these people are more experienced than me really, but it's kind of like blows their mind a little bit. Like, what do you mean? I have to like the next day, I have to come back the next day. Like that just is flabbergasting to them. Like, I don't know if I want to do that. It's like, well, you know, if, if you make this type of shot, if you shoot the heart versus the lungs versus everything we've talked about so far, but I just think that's interesting. Like from state to state, different people's experiences and their reality is just so different. Um, so anyway, that's just like my little comment there. But, um, if you're used to shooting with a rifle a lot, uh, I just, it's amazing what you might not know, you know, if you're going into archery specifically. Yep. Archery. Yep. So that kind of ties in well into broadheads and sharpness of broadheads is that's I seen that as just really extremely important is to have sharp broadheads. And I see that as actually kind of a major issue or challenge or problem with a number of archers out there too is the dull broadheads. So just the importance, how much better they cut and how much actually quicker a deer can bleed out with a sharp broadhead. And in some ways, um, I've had doctors explain this too, how those deer, the blood vessels, how elastic they are. And a, and a dull bald head will actually, in some ways, push it out of the way versus a sharp broad head will actually cut through that and uh, just results in much, much more devastating wounds and blood trails too with a good sharp broad head. And just amazing how the difference, how it'll penetrate an animal to a, a doll versus a sharp one. And so in some ways it's crazy that even brand new broadheads on the package, some of those are sharp, but they're not, they're, they're not as sharp as they could be. They're not razor sharp. And so I encourage, and I actually sh sharpen Every broadhead, even a broadhead, even new out of the package, I will sharpen that. And uh, just really important to have the sharpness on your broadheads there. And especially after 
a broadhead is shot, there's a number of people that will reuse broadheads after it goes through a deer. It'll be somewhat sharp, but it's not razor sharp. So if it really encourage if an arrow's been broadhead's been shot, is really need to resharpen it, reuse it, or, or replace it with new blades, or they really the importance of a sharp blade there. Yeah, that's great. I don't know that I've ever, uh, I think maybe one time, cause they were like really dull out of the package. Um, I don't know that I've regularly ever sharpened my broadheads and I don't, and I, and I don't ever want to say, I'm sure there's people who's, who are listening mm-hmm. who are like, I do that all the time, but I don't think I know anybody who does that. Like, I don't know if they do or not, but if that's like a regular practice, but that seems like such a simple thing that um, I'm sure it's overlooked, you know, because once yeah, the season it's, gets it's there, Yep, it's yeah. oftentimes unknown or overlooked. So there are some videos online on how to do it. And yeah. uh, I enjoy some of the, there's some, the hunting public in the ranch ferry had some instructions on sharpening and um, just the importance of sharpness there too. And so yeah. to check out some of those instructional videos and some of the other resources out there. Yeah. I will definitely be making that a regular practice because I'm, I need all the help I can get sometimes. So this is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the other thing is about jumping the string. That's another thing that's really quite common with deer. And it's really quite amazing how they can just in a fraction of a second move several inches and it makes can definitely make it between a good shot and a poor shot. Um, so pretty much what I pretty much expect anymore when I shoot that deer is to expect that deer is going to jump the string or typically that deer is going to drop. And so what I've begun here more recently is to actually aim low and anticipate that deer is going to drop two to at least two to three inches and even by aiming low what that means is if the deer for happen doesn't move i'm still gonna hit a little low and potentially get the heart but typically what happens is that deer does move and drop and i typically then hit exactly where i'm aiming there into the lungs and so the other part is for some reason if you do happen to shoot a little low that deer's you got a chance just missing the deer and the deer is going to be pretty much uninjured and live to another day. So that's what I encourage kind of a take home is, is actually try to aim just a little low on the deer than you would typically do anticipate that jumping of the string. Yep. Love it. Yep. So moving on to recovery, you know, the number one thing out there too is when in doubt back out if you think you got a marginal hit is to back out give it some time the other thing too is recovery plan is really know your wait times out there so the often biggest problem is is actually tracking too soon being uh you know excited being anxious um typically those deer with a good shot are going to be dead within 400 yards and it's it's best to find that deer dead in the first bed if you jump it too soon many times you'll find that once you jump it out of the first bed then there's no blood trail or the second is you jump it that goes on the neighbor's property where you can't track 
And so, yeah, really just bumping it out of the first bed is often the biggest air problem that I see. And then there's typically no blood trail after that. Uh, the other is uh, people giving up on a four hour liver shot. You know, they bump it out of the first bed and they, it's, uh, and I've had that with my buddy. We, we um, were fairly new to it, didn't really know. We jumped it up, it's four hours old, it was liver shot, jumped it up and the deer took off and said, boy, that deer looks pretty healthy. And uh, we, we give up on it thinking, well, we're not gonna recover that deer. But in reality, uh, that deer probably died within 30 hours. And it would, we, it would have been good to just go back out there and give it um, even potentially uh, wasn't allowed to do blood track at that time with a dog, but then grid searched and would have been a good chance would have found that deer. But uh, again, know your wait times for any difference for liver shot. Yeah. Um, well, here we've got a slide on trailing game and some of the blood sign. Um, just the difference in colors of blood and knowing, you know, different charts, different colors of blood means different things and bubbles in blood, you know, indicates a lung hit. Um, what to look for in a gut shot, you know, maybe a greenish color or, you know, kind of a runny. And then the importance of even like if it's on a leaf or on some ground where you can actually smell it, is try to get a whiff of that, what it might smell like, or be, or if you smell the arrow and, and certainly the, the smell will give you a good indication on some of your field signs there too. Um, here we have a slide on blood and looking at blood splatter. And so even looking at it, examining real close is just a really drop with a splatter, or you can look at the blood splatter and get the direction the deer is moving there too. And in some ways um, I've had where deer will double back and you think you're on the trail and the deer is going away from you. But uh, even sometimes when those deer think they're being pursued, how they'll double back and go on the same trail and so it's really good to examine, well, is the deer going the direction we think it's going or did that deer double back? So some of those- Yeah, because you know, my, my understanding on that too is that you know, you're in their, their home and even though they've been shot, typically those areas are where they feel safe or that's what they know. And so they might just go, like, I've heard that before, different, like, thoughts on that, but if it's, like, their, that's their safe place, like, even though they have been hurt, um, they're going to go, they're going to go back to their safe places, basically. I don't know, like, how accurate that is, or, you know, water, or um, there's a deer that I shot last year that thought about it nonstop during this whole conversation of <laughs> just, like, um, I, I, what I recall, I shot him right behind the shoulder. There was a really good amount of blood. There was a lot of blood where I shot him. It was a pass-through shot. Um, there was like this little hill behind me and I watched him the whole time until he, he walked super slow. Um, almost like he seemed like he was gonna tip over, like just very like sag in his head kind of thing. And he goes right over this hill and the second he goes over this hill, which is not very far away from me, the woods light up and coyotes are going crazy. There's just like 
yipping and calling all over the place, like right on the other side of this hill. It's super loud. And that just kind of shook me for a second. Um, and I didn't think about it at the time. Like when it happened, I was just like, oh my gosh, like my adrenaline's going so much and that happened. And it, it almost seemed like a made up sound in my mind. Cause I was just so amped up. Like this was a great buck. Like I felt very confident about my shot. I'm like, this is like, I could see the blood on him. I could see the blood on the ground before I even got out of my stand. Um, I'm like, this is going to be good. You know, this is getting right at the end of shooting light. And when we go to track it, there's like blood, 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 get over this hill where I saw him go. Um, right. As you get to the backside of the hill, there's all this really tall grass. And then it starts to go into a private property. And we know particularly these, these folks um, really don't like hunters too. So it was just kind of like, oh gosh, you know, we, we get to this tall grass and you can see blood on both sides of the tall grass, right? So there's, so, you know, he walked through there and then it just disappears. Like it is, it, I, we just couldn't figure out <clears throat> what happened. And then I replayed back and I don't know how, like, I, I don't know, but, um, I tell my boyfriend, who's helping me track. I'm like, right when he went over this hill, coyotes went insane. They were like, there's, it was crazy. And I go, I wonder if he took off, like if he ran, um, and cause I'm like, I was so confident about the shot. I'm like, but the blood just disappears. I mean, it just went from a lot, both sides, bright red to nothing. And we never found it. Um, and it bothers me a lot because <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm pretty confident he died, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I just, I don't know. So. Yeah. There's a number of tough, tough ones out there and there's other factors where potentially like they're chased like a, by a coyote or there's times during the rut where they come across the hot doe and they're pursuing and there's, and just, it's amazing. Um, some of these deer will potentially like they get an adrenaline rush like they're spooked and how they they're pretty much dead on their feet but they're they're running on adrenaline and how yeah. far they can travel so there's really some odd ones out there too that really don't quite make sense yeah. and the other part is it stresses just how darn tough it sounds like you have a lethal hit there and how far it went and still not be able to recover even on a really great shot is really quite amazing though and, and that's some ways where especially where dogs can come into with some of those in a grass field and different mm -hmm. where there's uh or even where they go across an open field is where the dogs can still track and recover those even yeah. after a rain or a snow has washed the blood away and something that you said uh yesterday yesterday and today that I think is so great because depending on who's listening in their experience like this might what I say might be like a duh moment but for for others like I think um when you talked about because we're talking about like blood tracking and like blood tracking dogs but really most of these dogs aren't tracking blood that's not what they're tracking at all they're tracking um I mean they are right but there's a lot of like different sense and like the glands you were talking about between their you know in their feet and like that mm -hmm. stressed, sick, like scent, I guess that they're following, um, you know, for the longest time, I would have just thought they're just tracking blood, you know? Um, but that, I mean, 
that's really not it at all, actually. Yep. Which is so, fascinating. So, yeah, so it's really quite fascinating. Uh, blood tracking dog is actually a misnomer. Yeah. Ask people, how much blood does a dog need to track and recover a deer? And the answer is zero. They need zero yeah. blood is the really the quite the crazy part. Oh. And how they use that interdigital gland between the toes is how they the experience and the good dogs can track and recover this deer. So you and I and the hunters know if there's a blood trail, we can re we can cover that are on our own we don't need a dog and 90 probably 98 99 percent of the deer shot in iowa have a blood trail that you know just a fraction of these dogs um are actually used to recover deer in iowa there's over 100 150,000 deer annually harvest in the state and so, yeah, as we know, most of those deer recovery recover without a dog and the dog yeah. isn't needed because there is a good blood trail. But so they yeah. really come into play when, when, uh, you know, especially when it's a gut shot and the, the intestines plug up the holes or there's rain covers up the track or there's, um, especially seem like a valuable is when the dogs is for a liver shot. And that deer goes to the first bed, beds down, quits bleeding, and then it, it's either bumped from that first bed or leaves from that first bed for some reason, and there's no blood trail. But those liver shots and gut shots are going to die, and that's, that's typically where the dog is important when there's no blood to track those. So again, yeah. it's really it, quite amazing. That and, the liver, and the liver shots, if they do bleed, you know, a little bit it's something that a lot of us wouldn't probably see or notice. And mm -hmm. I read just recently, um, it's like, it was comparing percentages. The, the way they compared it was like what a dog smells versus what a human can smell. And it's something yeah. like, if you had a, if you had a, a swimming pool and you dumped a bag of sugar in the swimming pool, the dog can smell that sugar in the pool. Like in comparison, like humans can't smell that. It was kind of a like way to break down, like how powerful their noses mm -hmm. are. So even from that aspect, like even mm -hmm. if there is like just tiny drops of blood, especially liver blood that's darker and you might not see so, mm -hmm. so easily, um, just what they're capable of is crazy. But it's, yeah. it's interesting that I'd wonder, and maybe you know this, um, there's a podcast I really enjoy listening to, uh, Hunting Dog Confidential, and he talks about um, he's the, the, the host, there's two hosts. One of them is working on a book right now. And he's talking about the history of hounds and dogs and the difference between hounds and dogs, or, you know, they're kind of the same thing, but why people use that verbiage and, um, what they are bred for, where they come, their origin, um, what we bred out of them, like the history of like what, how humans altered these dogs. Um, you know, the whole, like starting from a wolf to now a chihuahua kind of thing, but it's a really fascinating podcast. Um, but he, it's interesting when he talks about hounds, like, I wonder where the bloodhound name comes from, because it doesn't matter if they're really thinking about it, tracking deer or not, they're really not tracking blood for anything that they're tracking. They're tracking exactly what you're saying, like uh -huh. the, the glands and the, the other smells and senses that they have that we don't, I guess, but yeah. Anyway, I wonder yeah. where that name comes from. <laughs> yeah. 
so it's amazing how they can even you know the you know the skin cells that are shed how they can track those the hair the hair and follicles all the other things the odor that we shed and uh, um, it's amazing how people that train their dogs for tracking humans you know yeah that, uh, people say well I'll put on a pair of rubber boots and that dog won't be able to track me and that that's that it doesn't matter that you can wear rubber boots or whatever that dog is still bloodhounds still going to be able to track a person yeah so the, the other kind and of crazy... my dogs are always they're not always I mean I yeah they always show like bloodhounds like nose to the ground or whatever but dogs like wind stuff and lift their head up and smell things to the side and mm-hmm. you know watching any hunting dog you can see that they're not always just nose to the ground yeah at all times you know it's interesting kind of a funny story with a friend of mine that uses a bloodhound to recover deer and uh, this person shows up at this track for this hunter and the the hunter says well you got a bloodhound here but there's I don't have any blood there's no deer blood to track (laughs) is is your dog going to be able to track because there's no blood and it's it's just kind of a funny kind of funny story that uh it's a bloodhound that the hunter expects the dog needs blood to track and and it's really crazy they don't need any yes yeah yeah i mean it's the way it's presented when you're at least for me like when in movies or um car you know cartoons as a kid people way people talk about it you just that's kind of unless you grow up around that that's kind of what you think it really is you know yeah um but yeah, it makes it makes a ton of sense now. <laughs> so it's it's even I, I found that really fascinating myself as how they could track without the blood. But what's I found even more fascinating is the dogs can know the difference between a mortally wounded deer and a healthy deer. And actually, the other part is learning more about this interdigital gland in the hoof of the deer is what the deer actually use that gland for. That interdigital gland actually helps deer communicate between each other. So that gland scent helps other deer that are following along in the trail, but it actually even communicates that deer mood from one deer to the other. That deer can portray its excitement. It can actually portray fear through that inner digital gland and actually leave scent, fear scent, that pheromone for other deer will actually pick up on that. And so it's, it's really quite interesting how deer communicate each other, between each other with that gland, but also how the dogs can interpret that too. And, and for example, that we talked about wolves, you know, be able to pick out a, a mortally wounded or a sick elk or a deer out there and how they can then focus on that particular deer in that herd or again, too, is how dogs can smell out cancer, too. And so it's certainly, it's interesting the deer, how dogs can interpret it, how a deer is, what type of physical condition it's actually in. So it's really quite yeah, interesting I, what they can. I wonder what the correlation is. I know, you know, humans, where we differ is having this, you know, like our thought process and the way that we we think and analyze and give names to things and speak is different than the rest of the animal world but to me it would be the same as especially if you're you know a little bit like intuitive or you know pay attention to that you walk into a room there's no there's no 
verbal anything. There's no nonverbal like communication. You can just walk into a room and sense right away if it's uncomfortable, dangerous, someone just was in an argument, um, tension between people of any kind, sadness, like you, there's something with humans like that as well, you know, um, that I just don't know if we like analyze it in that way, but I think we communicate that way. Um, also, you know, I don't know. And yeah, maybe we, we just have so many other things going on that we don't. In, in some ways, I think we do that more visually. Mm-hmm. We can pick up on those mm-hmm. cues visually, but more so with the deer's amazing dogs as they can pick up on through that with the scent. They yeah, can pick up on crazy. those cues and kind of casey that. So yeah, it's amazing awesome. how much the, and it makes sense too, how much better deer can smell and dogs can smell too versus us as well. Mm-hmm. Really quite, quite amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Thank you, Dave, for coming back on the on the podcast. And we are so thrilled to have you back again for part two. Hope everybody enjoyed part one of shot placement, recovery, blood tracking. This is awesome. And we will continue this conversation in a couple weeks. So thanks so much for being here. Stay tuned. Until next time, get out there.